This is an ABC podcast. Hello, Kirsty Melville here with the History Listen, where today we're going on a 3,000 kilometre trek across Australia. With sunrise. And by the time I got to Bullier, I thought I was going to die for sure. I thought, what am I doing here? How stupid can I be? It's the late 1980s, and the country's riding a wave of patriotic fervour ahead of the bicentennial celebrations. Queensland millionaire Arthur Earle wants in on the action, and he dreams up a race linking the outback and the beach. He plans to pay homage to the Afghans, Muslim camel drivers from Afghanistan, Pakistan and India who led camel trains through the bush to build rail and telegraph lines. Plus, they'll raise money for the Royal Flying Doctor Service. But an endurance race of this magnitude through the sweltering heat of the Australian desert has never been tried before and will likely never happen again. Today, 35 years later, journalist Michelle Gately relives the journey. Here's part one of the Great Australian Camel Race. I was just by myself in the desert and um, suddenly Tiki just jumped up where I had him tied and ran off and he headed for the hills basically. There are long sand dunes that ran, they must have been like 50 metres high. He ran to the top of one and then disappeared. And I ran to the top of that sand dune and when I got to the top, he was disappearing. When GP Jill Cole heard about an epic race from Uluru to her home on the Gold Coast, she thought it sounded like the perfect adventure. She'd broken records as an international marathon runner and been a professional jockey, so surely she could handle a camel. Jill soon learned that camels have strong personalities and the one she borrowed for the race, Tiki, was pretty stubborn. And one evening in the Simpson Desert, a few weeks into the gruelling race, Tiki showed his true colours. So I stood on that sand dune and just watched him go over one sand dune after the next. And I thought, you know, I could die out here. No one knows where I am. But to understand how Jill got to the desert, alone and watching her only hope of survival disappear into the distance, we need to rewind back to the mid-1980s. Any chance of of an adventure, I'm always up for it. It's 1986 and Paddy McHugh is a young adventurer who's already got a few camel treks under his belt. That year he gets a phone call. His mate tells him about a man called Arthur Earl putting up big money for a camel race. Paddy can supply plenty of camels for the race, so he meets Arthur for lunch. He said, would you like to drive to uh, Uluru with me? And I said, for sure. There was just one problem. Arthur told everyone to pay their own way and Paddy was broke. Probably one of the richer people in Queensland and he was a bit of a it was a tight ass, I suppose. And he said to me, he said, look, Paddy, you can't have your own hotel room. Not that they were very good hotel rooms. He said, you'll have to sleep on the floor in, in my room. 
He wouldn't let me sleep on the beds. I don't know whether it was sort of what he was trying to test me out or whatever it was, but he made me sleep on the floor. And I had bought my own swag because I thought we might have been doing a bit of camping and I thought we were going out west in a four-wheel drive, but it was his the latest, greatest Mercedes-Benz. Uh, we're hitting clouds of bull dust and just disappearing in this flash car in the middle of nowhere and getting airborne from time to time in various creeks and crossings that we went through. Arthur may have been a millionaire driving a flash car by now, but he'd started life, Paddy says, as a busted-ass sort of bloke who had a knack for wheeling and dealing. Arthur was brought up tough as nails. Arthur had properties out west and he told me there one day that he, he and a few other blokes hand-cleared 3,000 acres of Brigalow scrub to make it viable for cattle and sheep to run on it. You don't come much tougher than that. Arthur Earl eventually made his millions as a Gold Coast property developer, but it was his love of the bush that drove his vision for the camel race. His idea of the race was to celebrate how tough the bush can be, how hard it is. And nobody on that race, bar the army guys, everybody else did it as tough as Arthur did when he was a young fellow. And I think that was his aim, where we lived in incredibly tough conditions. Arthur planned to lure competitors with a $100,000 prize pool, over $230,000 in today's money. That would be divvied up across winners of each leg, including a $40,000 grand prize for the first person to cross the finish line at the Gold Coast. Paddy was all in, and even lined up a film crew to cover the three-month race. But the event couldn't go ahead without a vet, so Paddy got in touch with Alex Tinson. I sort of thought, well, I wouldn't mind being head of the veterinary team. Well, as it turned out later, I was the veterinary team. Alex spent the early part of his career working with zoo animals, including at places like the Bacchus Marsh Lion Safari, and later set up practices on the Gold Coast. Alex initially turned down Paddy's proposal to be his team vet. With two young daughters and a pregnant wife, he could hardly set off into the outback for months on end without pay. Eventually, Arthur got involved and offered a decent wage. Although, as it turned out, maybe not so decent for what was going to come. It was quite a process because, obviously, you know, the, just the thought of racing these animals 3,500 kilometres across the country, I think to this day it's still the longest animal endurance race sort of ever done anywhere. And obviously the animal welfare issues were sort of high on the list and... You know, we really had to come up with a, a create a set of rules to sort of control how the race ran. Like a car rally, the race route was broken down into six legs with checkpoints along the way. Each competitor was backed up by a support vehicle which would travel ahead and carry food, water and all the essentials. Alex examined the camels at each checkpoint, monitoring heart rates for distress and looking for any obvious injuries. What it means to be an Australian in 1988. My wife and I are delighted to be able to return to Australia at this very special time. After 87 years of federation, a permanent home has been provided for Parliament. Sydney welcomes home lone sailor Kay Cotty. For Brisbane, this huge event is a coming of age. Today, Expo's creators. Australian says the results of Saturday's referendum are an absolute debacle. And so the race was on, and the start date of April 23rd, 1988 was set. But who in their right mind would be game enough to enter? I started to hear about it and I thought, this sounds absolutely amazing, a great adventure. Well, there was GP Jill from the Gold Coast. 
She joined another small group of competitors, sharing a support crew with them. Jill was confident her horse-breaking experience would serve her well when it came to her borrowed camel, a male called Tiki. Turns out, camels require a whole new skill set. They have their mind of their own and they know what they like and they want to do it. And Tiki, he sort of learnt how to annoy me, so I had this really nice saddle, soft leather padded with lamb's wool. And I'd only have to take my eyes off him for like one second and he would roll. He would roll gleefully in as many burrs as he could find. And I'd go over and I'd have like a thousand burrs to pick out of the saddle and out of his saddlecloth and that would take another half hour of time that he didn't have to do anything. He'd just sit there and watch me take all the burrs out <laughs> with me cursing him. During training, Tiki even broke Jill's arm by rolling with her in the saddle. And I'm thinking, well, you know, my camel prefers to be sitting on the ground chewing his cud. How am I going to do 40 kilometres every day? <laughs> the funny thing was, before the start of the race, when I arrived there, the SAS team were there doing push-ups and weights out in the middle of the open. And they looked at me and they said, oh, what are you doing here? And I said, oh, I'm in the race. <laughs> and they kind of looked me up and down because and, I was about 52 kilos and had stitches in my head from my camel punching me. And they said, it's going to be tough, you know. And I said, yeah, I'm pretty tough. I, I'll give it a go. <laughs> Among the soldiers in the race from the SAS, the Special Air Service, was Peter Cape, at the end of 1987, as Peter's squad was finishing two years of counter-terrorist duties, they were offered what was billed as an adventurous training activity. We just thought, OK, this, is, this will be a... I don't want to say a bludge, but it, this will be something different to normal training. We found out it was actually a race. The Army had arranged for a West Australian camelier, also competing in the race, to supply camels and train the team. But Peter says the training didn't unfold as expected. And by the time the race started, he still hadn't even sat on his camel. The camel that I had, he couldn't, I couldn't even sit on it. It just throw me straight off. It was just pointless. Never rode it before the race, once. But there was one person who seemed to have full control and a deep connection with his animal. When I first started, um, Carla, she used to bolt. 20k through the bush and try and wipe me out and all sorts and roll on me and everything. Gordon O'Connell was a carpet layer living in the gem fields in central Queensland. The sort of man who'd turn his hand to pretty much anything, which is why he said yes to training two camels for a neighbour, John Richardson, who wanted to compete in the race. Soon, Gordon and John agreed to partner. The plan was they'd share support crews and split any prize money. But a few months into training, the pair fell out. By this point, though, there was no way Gordon was pulling out. The time I'd taken off from my own business, I had a floor covering business in Emerald, and with the race, you're talking about, you know, 14 months that I hadn't gone to work at all. So that's when I decided, well, I'm going to win this. Right or wrong, I'm going to win this for my family's sake. Gordon trained his camel, Carla, daily for 10 months. Probably when I started, I'd be lucky to run 20Ks, you know, um, and I just built that up with her. Only after I had led her and run her for 100Ks myself, I knew that we were ready. Even though she hadn't been ridden a lot. 
And in early 1988, as competitors and support crews trucked their animals out to the Red Centre, a Brisbane photographer got an irresistible request. I was a mum sharing the running of a business, two little kids um, doing the suburban thing. Donna Phillips had just enough time to pack her bag and camera kit before heading out to the race start in the Northern Territory. I had the opportunity to seek my adventurous side and go off into the unknown. So on Saturday, April 23rd, 69 competitors assembled at the base of Uluru. There's nothing but sand, and then there's this quadrangle that was taped to contain what was going to unfold. And this vision looked like a caravanserai or something from another place. The next major thing, of course, was the start of the race, uh, just away from Uluru itself. And all the camelies were lined up and there was lots of gidgee bush and uh, small trees and things like that in the way. So it wasn't like a clear view that you'd get at a race course. Uh, there were people sort of dotted everywhere and camel handlers with their, their camels and their riders. The start was pretty, uh, pretty exciting and they all tore off at a great speed. When the starting gun went off, uh, I think it might have been a false start, so it was shot again. And with that, you know, people started to go forwards, but it wasn't this amazing camels racing and sand going and so on. It was a sort of mishmash. I couldn't really get a good photograph. The first leg of the race would cover 437 kilometres to Alice Springs. The plan was competitors would take eight days to get to Alice, where they'd have two days rest before the race picked up again. And I sort of had this vision, I thought, oh great, we'll just have a bit of a relax for a couple of days. And literally, it was probably less than 24 hours later and we got the message from the lead uh, military observers to say that they'd almost got to the first checkpoint, which was supposed to be three days away. The first day, actually, I was um, just leading my camel along and a group of army guys came jogging along beside their camels and they just kind of said hello. And I said, oh, can I jog with you? And they said, oh, well, if you want to, you, we, we're going to jog for quite a while. So I, I jogged with them. And after about 10 k's, I could see that all of them were pretty exhausted. And, and I wasn't even puffing because, you know, I'm a marathon runner and this is what I do. I just started off doing a small trot, not really pushing her at all or anything like that. There would have been 30 camels in front of me. By lunchtime, I hit the bloody front, not even trying, you know, and there was guys actually bashing their camels and they were laying down and, you know, just no prep at all. Didn't even have a saddle on there. I couldn't ride, I could not ride it. I was running with it. Like, a, I think, a couple of other guys, we started off running and there was camels going left, right and centre. There's people losing their camels. Oh, I can't remember how long down the track, but at one point, my camel just broke away from me and started running back towards the start line down the highway. And Gordon actually was the bloke who caught it for me. I was fuming angry. I was like, angry, angry. I don't know how far I'd run at that point. But I picked up a rock and I just wanted to brain this camel. I was like, I really lost it. And I threw the rock at this thing. 
in hindsight, geez, if I'd really crowned it, it would have been no good for all of us. But um, anyway, it hit it just behind the eye and it sat down straight away. And then a senior army fellow came up and said, listen, if you want to shoot this camel, just take it away and shoot it. It's that belligerent and bloody horrible. Since their falling out, Gordon and John Richardson had entered the race as individual competitors. Throughout the first leg, a bitter rivalry emerged as tension between the two men continued to simmer. John Richardson's camel wasn't trained sufficiently to push it as hard as he did straight out of the starting gun like that. Two or three days out and it fell apart. Somebody had come up and told me John Richardson had pulled out. Now I swear to you, honestly, for an hour I sang, ha 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 John you asshole!" at the top of my voice. I was so thrilled. But this wouldn't be the end of the ugly feud between Gordon and former partner John, as you'll hear in part two when they meet again years after the race. Gordon says the first few days were easy for him and Carla, but that wasn't the case for others, including SAS man Peter, who'd only been running and not riding. It was time to get in the saddle. We jumped on. Took off like the clappers. It was running flat. It ran across the highway, out of control, ran through a fence, and then it was heading for this dam. And the whole way, I'm just beating it over that to try and get it to slow down, at least change direction. And I couldn't. And it ran up to this dam, and it was like one of those cartoons where you know it puts the front legs down and they straighten out, and it tried to throw me over the top of it just sat down and I thought, oh God, and it wouldn't budge. And then the next minute I saw a group of camels going along the, the highway and it just got up and followed them. And I got a reprieve and I sat on that camel for as long as I could. Peter's camel wasn't the only one who instinctively followed the herd. Camels have a pecking order and Tiki liked to be last regardless. At some stage in his wildlife, he'd been taught, put in his place and told to be last. So that was my place in the early stages of the race. It was last, and nothing I could do would persuade Tiki to go any faster. Camaraderie flourished between support crews, with many keen to help any competitor they came across, offering food, water, or even just some company. And, and the locals did too. You know, if they saw me sitting at the side of the road with Tiki, which is quite common, Tiki would just sit down and I'd, I'd get out, I'd boil the billy because it could be a two or three hour sit, I wasn't sure at the time. <laughs> I, I would just sit there with him and people would, the property owners and that, that lived out there, they'd come over and see me and have a cup of tea with me. When she could get Tiki moving, Jill's experience as a marathon runner was coming in handy. You know, endurance, a lot of it's in the mind and sometimes it just gets down to take the next step. If you start thinking, look, I've still got 10 kilometres to go, you just, it's, it's just too much, but you just focus one step after the other. And I did that a lot in the race. Gordon was also finding that mindset was one of the most important parts of the race. I think you get into almost a hypnotic state, yeah. It's just you're not really doing it. You're almost outside of yourself. The strategy was paying off. Gordon easily won the first leg of the race, surprising everyone when he got into town 18 hours ahead of schedule. Everyone kept asking me how I was, and I said, good, why? I mean, I couldn't understand what the hell they were asking me for. It was apparent that Gordon was the man to beat 
at that early stage, he really was, his camel was something extraordinary. And vet Alex was amazed by the resilience of all the camels, even this early on in the race. I just never imagined that they would go as well and as fast as they did. I, I thought I'd get a lot more problems with the camels. I thought I'd see a lot more injuries. By the end of the first leg of the race, the field of competitors had dropped from 69 down to 51. Drew's waltzing, here's Matilda, here's a swaggy. Among those remaining was someone competing without a camel, travelling the more than 3,300 kilometres on foot. He's young with his dog laddie. He's walking for the human race today. Victorian swaggy Drew Kettle had once walked from Darwin to Adelaide to raise money for the Royal Flying Doctors Service. So it wasn't surprising he asked to join the 1988 race, even though he didn't have a camel to ride. If you can have a bit of fun and do a bit of good. I cheat a little bit, he pulls me along. Does a great job. The first leg has been a telling one. More than 20 entrants have dropped out, including World Safari adventurer Albie Mangles, who left shortly after the race began. The second leg began at first light this morning. Race leader Gordon O'Connell of Queensland headed off first and departure. The second leg of the race, expected to take about two weeks, would see racegoers trek nearly 900k from Alice Springs across the Simpson Desert to the western Queensland town of Bullia. And it was here, in the middle of nowhere, that Jill and her camel Tiki would come to a new understanding. I tied him up, I was by myself. Um, I tied him to a very unsubstantial bush, thinking, you know, he'll be right there for a while. He's tired, he's sitting down, he won't do anything. I had everything that I owned on him and my support crew was 100 kilometres ahead because um, they basically got sick of waiting for me. They'd gone ahead with the other faster riders. And the plan was I'd sleep out there by myself at night. I had some water, I had my rifle in case wild camels came in. I had a little bit of food. My radio didn't work so I had no comms with anyone. I was just by myself in the desert. And suddenly Tiki just jumped up where I had him tied and ran off. And he headed for the hills, basically. There are long sand dunes that ran, they must have been like 50 metres high, to the top of one, and then disappeared. I tend not to panic, but it was all going through my mind. I was starting to catastrophise, thinking, you know, this is going to end badly. I'm going to die of dehydration in the desert, and I've got no radio comms with anyone, and I'm off track. So I thought, I've got to try and get him back somehow. And I, I knew what he was doing. He'd get to the top of the sand dune and look, his head would just turn from right to left and he'd look and look and look. He was looking for his family because he knew that they'd come from out there somewhere and he thought he might see them out there. And so every time he'd, he'd stop on top of a sand dune, he was getting a long way away, like probably 800 metres. And he'd look back at me, I'd wave. And eventually, when I could hardly see him, I saw him get to the top of one sand hill and just turn around and come back towards me. He had a good look and he realised that, that there was none of his family out there and the only living soul was me and he was just going to have to do with me. <laughs> he walked nonchalantly back to me, sat down where he's supposed to be, everything's still intact, all the water and everything. And from that day we just got on fabulously. He, he just wanted to be with me and he tried really hard for me.
And it was just as well that Jill and Tiki had formed a stronger bond because they'd need it for the rest of the race. While most of the racegoers knew the Australian outback was rugged, they couldn't have imagined how weather, water and an infectious disease would almost send the race belly up. So the cars are getting bogged, the camels are slipping slide, the people are falling over. I've got photos somewhere of you know, camels literally down to their chest in mud. This mud just stuck to everything and you, it was so hard to walk through because you, you were like on six inches of mud. I went down on the ground and I was bloody really rolling around. We also had no water out there. We had three weeks where we had no water for showers and no water for really keeping yourself clean and so that was a recipe for disaster. It was really, really dangerous. And by the time I got to Bullier, I thought I was going to die for sure. I thought, what am I doing here? How stupid can I be? I'll tell you, never have so many people gone to such lengths to have a terrible time. <laughs> but, you know, none of us wanted to stop. So would anyone get to call themselves the winner of the Great Australian Camel Race? You'll have to join me for part two, the dramatic final instalment of this epic 1988 adventure. As competitors battle flood, fatigue and flies in the push towards the finish line. That's next time, here on the History Listen. The Great Australian Camel Race was produced by Michelle Gately with sound design and engineering from Russell Stapleton. And thanks to Arana Films for access to their documentary about the race. I'm Kirsty Melville, and I'll catch you next time. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.